I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. First of all, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in, subscribing, following, reviewing, sharing this show. It's because of you that this continues to reach so many people. So let's keep it up. Please make sure to share this show with someone today, especially this episode I'm so excited to bring to you. But first, I want to let you know there's a couple episodes that have just been published in the last couple weeks. Please go check it out. There is so much conversation around them. Last week with Emily Crawford, she's talking about leaving her career to become a full-time caregiver. Most of us know something about that. The week before, we talked to the beautiful Anne Rigari, and we had a really moving conversation about brain and tissue donation. And before that, we talked with two of my favorite gals, Emily and Katie, about the fear and the joy and all of the feelings that come with deciding to have another child after you have a medically complex kid. So go check out those episodes, please, and let me know what you think. I'm so excited to bring you my episode today. It's with someone I just adore so much. We instantly connected when we met a while back, and I'm just so grateful for him and what he brings to our rare disease community. He's such a light. And today we're talking about his disorder, NF2, and how his story is so much about not just overcoming what he was going through, but learning how to thrive because of it. And I really do mean that in so many ways, and you'll hear about it. Uh, So something super exciting. He is a brand new author of an awesome book that's available now everywhere. Go first to your local bookshop if you can and ask them to order it. Otherwise, of course, you can get it at the usual places. The title of the book is called The Soundtrack of Silence. And the book's all about his journey through NF and losing his hearing and having brain surgeries and matching the songs of his life to his memories. It delves deep into his life, even from, you know, when he was a little teeny boy and developing neurofibromatosis type 2, NF2. Uh, So his book just touches on so many things throughout his journey of the progression of the disease as well. And something so cool, Channing Tatum just bought the rights to this book, The Soundtrack of Silence, and he's going to turn it into a movie, y'all, okay? A rare disease movie from Channing Tatum. I can only imagine that Matt's wife, Nora, has has some feelings about that. So I'm super excited. Uh, you have to get this book. It's so beautiful. There's also a Spotify playlist that goes along with it. I'll share the link to that in the show notes. Get it immediately. It's such a feel-good story. Everything about Matt just makes you want to hang on to what he's saying. And it makes you just have a little lighter step. 
in your day. I promise. Okay, sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Matt Hay. Hi, Matt Hay. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Effie. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited. You know, I had the absolute privilege of meeting you in person for the first time, I don't know, a while back. And we just had a really instant connection. And I'm so grateful that I got to meet you. Well, I feel the same way. I was lucky enough to hear you speak and share a little bit of your story. And I thought, boy, I think that's somebody I can learn from. So I'm glad we're talking again. Well, you've had quite a journey and something we're going to talk about today with the excitement of your new book launch we'll get into for sure. Can you give our guests who don't know you yet a little bit of background? Sure. So my name is Matt Hay and I live in Indianapolis, 47 years old, which is uh, not something I think about a lot, but relevant here because it's been about 30 years since I was diagnosed with a rare disease called neurofibromatosis type 2, or more succinctly, NF2. And I was diagnosed in college. We can get in that a little bit, but essentially NF2 is, uh, I lack a tumor suppressor gene. And because of that, tumors can grow on the sheath that surrounds any nerve in my body. I'm not a doctor, but I know enough that we have miles and miles of nerves in our body. So that means people with NF2 have a lot of place for these tumors to grow. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I know that not everyone has heard about your book yet, but I'm excited because I'm even going to give away a copy. Hopefully I can get you to sign it. But can you talk about the inspiration behind the book that is so beautifully titled The Soundtrack of Silence? Well, thank you. And it really goes back to, I mentioned the tumors growing on your nerves for whatever reason with NF2. Tumors really like your hearing nerves. And so one of the classic diagnoses for NF2 is I have benign tumors on my hearing nerves. So the nerve is what connects your all of your ear and pathway of hearing to your brain. So my ears work fine, but that little nerve that connects all of my hearing to my brain was damaged by brain tumors caused by NF. And as a result, I'm, uh, I guess, technically deaf. I'm, I can't hear anything. I have no nerve function in either ear. And we're having this conversation because of a relatively experimental brain implant. And they go into a little bit more detail about that in the book. But really, I found myself in my early 20s, totally deaf, trying to start a job, falling in love with a woman that is now my wife, trying to be, you know, to work, to be a husband, hopefully one day be a dad. And I had nowhere to turn. I had nobody who had been through what I was going through. And so I ultimately now, having kind of been through that for several decades, thought I had somewhat of a responsibility to put down in words what I was going through and to write the book that 23-year-old me really needed. Can you talk a little bit about this soundtrack and give people an idea? First of all, you have kept songs stuck in my head for weeks, by the way, which keeps me up at night. So thank you for that. But can you talk about when you started to sort of intentionally collect these songs and why, what that meant to you. Absolutely. And I get a little bit of irony about someone who's deaf writing a book about a soundtrack. But when I really came face to face with the notion that I was going to lose my hearing and I wasn't ever going to hear again, the music in my life, you know, high school, college music, I think for a lot of people is a big part of growth and journey and experience. And I was afraid that if I couldn't hear music again, that it wasn't just the songs. It wasn't just, oh man, I can't hear the Eagles again. It was, if I can't hear the Eagles, that 
might keep me from really recalling the feeling of getting your driver's license and driving around with your friends when you first turned 16 and the music that we were listening to then. So it wasn't just the song I wanted to hold on to, it was the memory and feeling associated with that song. So the book really has a soundtrack associated with all of my experiences with rare disease and dealing with rare disease because I started listening to those songs with intention. Hey, if I can't hear anymore, what songs do I want stuck in my head for the rest of my life? What songs when I'm feeling joy or sorrow do I want to reflect back on at that point in my life? Yeah, what, what song do I want connected with that? So I started really listening with intention to the soundtrack of my life lived so far. And a lot of that was, and I'm biased, but I think some pretty great music, you know, Tom Petty, Beck, uh, the Beatles, and a little bit of Dave Matthews, a little bit of Jimmy Buffett, you know, quite a, an eclectic mix. But I wanted to listen to those songs with a level of intention that I could draw on them in years or decades to come. You know, what I loved about reading your book is you're only slightly older than I am, but we shared so many of those moments in the car with our friends listening to Tupac or whatever it was that you were talking about. And I just I I had flashbacks to like all of my own memories of, you know, actually being in a car on the snowy, icy road in Montana and we were listening to Tom Petty and we were listening to Dave Matthews and then we actually drove off the road listening to the song Crash and I was like I was having these memories come back to me just by listening to you talk about songs and memories and it was very cool. What became unexpectedly special about that music is because I had listened to so a lot of the same songs over and over again but you know the ones that were meaningful is that I had one of those brain tumors removed uh, when I lost, finally lost all of my hearing and they implanted an experimental device called an auditory brainstem implant, which is like a cochlear implant. But instead of going to my cochlea, they, they attach a little fly swatter of about 12 electrodes directly to my brainstem. And some of the smartest doctors in the world says, we think this is where your brain processes sound. We're pretty sure. And so that's what the experimental part comes in. And the expectation was that I would hear life noises like uh, oven timers and police sirens. And after several years, that's really all I heard were beeps and buzzes and everything was very robotic. I wasn't satisfied with that. And I got frustrated and think, thinking here I am in my late 20s at the time. I don't want another 40 or 50 years of beeps and buzzes. You know, my kids, I, we had twins born around that time and I couldn't hear my babies crying. And uh, that was a very heavy moment for me to motivate myself to think, all right, I'm not okay with where I am. And so in my own effort and my own theory, why don't I start listening to those same songs that I listened to right before I lost my hearing? And maybe instead of my brain processing that, processing sounds through my implant, my brain can start telling my implant, no, 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 this, this is what that sounds like. And so I started listening to those same songs over and over. And I would love to say that there was this like miraculous aha moment immediately, but there wasn't, it failed. That theory of mine failed for two years. There's a lot of things I'm bad at, but one thing that I'm pretty good at is being irrationally persistent. And uh, every time I got in the car, I listened to the same songs over and over again. And about two and a half years later, uh, later one day I was in the car with my wife and I very distinctly pick up the lyrics of a song by OAR and uh, called Crazy Game of Poker. 
And uh, there was a moment in Chicago driving around in my wife's silver Jeep Liberty where we pulled over and cried because I've been deaf for several years and I just heard music. And if music wasn't already uniquely important to me in that moment, it became, uh, it took a whole new level. That's so beautiful. Uh, Something else everyone is going to love in this book is traveling through you and Nora falling in love and just how, how warm and touching that relationship was as you were waiting for this steamroller was your metaphor in your book of knowing that one day you weren't going to be able to hear. So I can't wait for you to to read about his wife, Nora. And something else I love about you is obviously your eternal optimism, right? And your determination and getting told this, you know, blow by blow and then going, actually, I'm going to do it this way or actually, I'm going to think about it this way. And I think that that's such a profound part of who you are as a person and how you've developed and really, truly overcome so many things that have happened. I mean, you were paralyzed not once, but a couple times, and you kind of chose your story on that path. So I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that steamroller metaphor that you mentioned and its inevitability coming to you, because I think a lot of the families listening here can really relate to that sort of anticipatory grief feeling. So I'm hearing you explain that and I'm thinking, man, she just did a better job than I did in the book. (laughs) So I feel like maybe we should have had this conversation before I published it. But that feeling of inevitability is is the word now I wish I had used. And I uh, maybe it's because of my hearing loss, but I think of things very visually and I'm very analogy driven because it helps me to take some kind of complex or confusing feelings or emotions or circumstances and explain them either to myself or to other people in a more simple to understand way. So instead of talking about the theory or idea of inevitability, it was easier for me to say, I felt like I was going to get run over by a steamroller, but steamrollers move slow. So if somebody says, hey, look at that steamroller down there, it's going to run you over, you know, five minutes pass and the steamroller's not there yet, you start to forget about it. And you start to think, well, maybe that steamroller's never going to hit me. And you move on with your life. And then it seems like at the moment, I least expected I went to work one day just like I had been, and the steamroller hit me walking down Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And all of a sudden, one day, I couldn't understand what anybody was saying anymore. And I think, you know, obviously, my circumstances is with NF2, which impacts one in 40,000 people. It would This would not be a very large or uh, high-quantity selling book if I was only writing it for something that impacted one in 40,000 people. A goal and motivation I had when I said of writing the book that I needed is I've learned a lot about living with rare disease. I have failed a lot at trying to live a fulfilling life with rare disease. And it seemed a little bit selfish to not share some of those things that I learned. And that was another motivation I had and of putting this on paper. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you, Effie, and with the network that you have is so many of the people that you know and that I know and maybe people that are listening deal with rare disease either personally or with their kiddos. And I hope that this book provides them with some new things to think about or new coping mechanisms or it's just a very upfront way to say hey here's some things that you think are going to be hard and they really really are hard you're right but here's some things that you think are hard and they're not you know it's not it's just a matter of maybe shifting your perspective a little bit and like I said it, it got to a point where when I was thinking about writing the book it felt very self-involved and ego-driven to think you know, I'm doing okay. Who am I to write a memoir? And 
I got to a point where I thought, you know what, I have a responsibility to do this because I don't care how many, I mean, I do, but I, it, I'm not doing this with a number in mind. If I can help three or four people and my mom says she was proud of me, it'll be worth it. You're so humble, Matt. But I think you know as well as I do and everyone else that any single tiny lifeline that's cast out for someone anywhere in this great giant isolating rock out in the middle of nowhere is life-saving and life-giving. I think it did that. And yeah, I'm sure your mom's proud. You know, that's another thing about you is how you thrive Right. Something you've said a couple of times is that one of your missions is to at least inform people how you decided to thrive because of NF2 and not despite it. So can you talk about that perspective and if that mind shift or that mindset that you you would hope someone would maybe take away after they read your book? I would love to because it took me about 30 years to I don't want to say figure it out because I still haven't figured it out. We're all we're all just trying to uh, to get through the day and do the best we can. So I haven't figured it out, but I've made some progress. And man, I wish someone had said this to me a long time ago, because maybe it would have made that path to get there a little bit shorter. But I spent so much of my life, you know, so because of the tumors that I have, I have, I, you know, I mentioned that I'm deaf and I hear with this sort of robotic implant, I'm using closed caption right now to be able to follow along on this conversation, but I've lost my hearing. I've lost my my balance. I can only blink with one eye. I can only tear with one eye. Half of my face doesn't really move, and I can't feel half of my face. I have a lack of superficial nerve sensation in my hands and feet, and I spend a lot of time pretending like that didn't exist you know, or uh, not letting people know about that or putting a lot of energy into making sure people didn't know. I have a 20-year window where nobody's seen a photo of the left side of my face. I was always positioning myself so you could only see my quote-unquote good side. When I worked, I had a, a, a young lady that worked for me or with me, and she would listen to my voicemails because she was the only one that I was told I couldn't understand what was being said on a voicemail. And I spent so much energy trying to exist and just be a person in spite of my disease. And that it really took me until my 40s and having the right people around me and the right working with and for the right people. You know, more specifically, I was unemployed at 40. I lost my job and thought, now what? Because this is the company I've managed to hide all of this stuff from and I still got let go uh, or downsized, whatever you want to call it. I was still on my couch every day looking for a paycheck. And I was very fortunate to meet some people in hearing care. And I was explaining my situation to them. And, and one gentleman who I talk about in the book or one of the dedications in the book said, Matt, you don't understand. We're not hiring you in spite of those things. We're hiring you because of those things. It's because of your understanding of people with rare disease, it's because of your understanding of what it's like to live with hearing loss, because you know how it's annoying when your battery, hearing aid battery dies and you forgot to bring a replacement. It's because of those things that we want you to be a part of what we are doing. And that was just, I mean, to him, this was just something you said in passing and really meant it. But that was a, a pretty pivotal moment for me because it forced me to look back and say, oh, my goodness. I really have learned all of these things, even if by accident, and it sounds ironic too, but because of my hearing loss, I've accidentally become a better listener. I read lips. And so if you are talking to me, you have my 100% undivided attention. I don't, I don't wander or listen to other people. I can only follow one conversation at a time. I've certainly become more empathetic because 
I used to think people couldn't do something or work through something emotionally because they weren't trying hard enough. But now I experienced in my life that sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you try, things are just out of reach. And the importance of you know adjusting goals accordingly, I would not have been forced to develop that skill had it not been for NF. And I, I say this is kind of a, a joke because it has uh, a good pattern to it. But in my 20s, I was embarrassed of my disease. In my 30s, I came to terms with my disease. And in my 40s, I've been become very proud of it. I'm, I'm proud of how it has shaped me and what I have learned from it. I love that so much. And so meaningful to to hear that you were hired on this basis too, right? And that throughout the decades of you going through this hearing loss and then being deaf and then the surgeries and all the aftermath that you triumphed in that and that you also alongside it were learning from it and applying it, right? It wasn't just like this one aha moment for you. You really did take steps and you learn a lot about yourself, even through going through these memories of these soundtracks in your life. Yeah, they did. It really, you know, I had sort of inadvertently put a lot of work into this, but sometimes it just takes one person recognizing your value to help you recognize your own value, which is probably a good time to mention that I fully and 100% appreciate something now that I did not, maybe even two or three years ago. And that is, and just thinking about the equity of health and the privilege that I have had and you've probably heard this statistic, but it takes an average of four years for somebody to get diagnosed with rare disease, which is, you know, sad and frustrating. From the time I went to see an audiologist to the time I was diagnosed with a very rare neurological disorder, took me four days. That there is a level of privilege that I enjoyed because I had parents who took me there. I had parents with great insurance. I had parents who were able to follow up and help me understand what I was going through. And that's why I think some of the work you are doing is so important, Effie, of, of shining a light on those gaps, because I took that for granted for a long time. And there's no reason why I should have that and somebody else shouldn't. Uh, you know, something I loved was you talking about yourself being a kid, you know, and how you didn't realize that you were hard of hearing at the time and that you had just built all these coping mechanisms to figure out what people were communicating and what was going on in your environment. And you didn't necessarily even notice it until you realized that maybe you were purposely not noticing it slash you actively realized that your body had just made up for the lack of hearing ability. And I imagined little Matt bebopping around. I saw kind of the lightness of that, of you just making it work, which you always ended up doing throughout your life. But as a, as a mom, right, I also was like super heartbroken uh, with that dichotomy that you had to have. And then you spoke about this dinner. And I don't know if it was a real life dinner that you had or if you were just using an example in the book, but you were saying, you were explaining what it was like to be deaf and say that you were at a table with eight people that you loved and you were having a conversation with Jimmy and Jimmy was like, oh yeah. And then this one time, Matt, and then he drops a fork, but he's still talking and the lights go out. And you you kind of gave this really beautiful visual of sound being on and the lights are on and sound being off as it goes dark. Because now that conversation's over, now you're feeling disconnected and isolated, but you're there and you said something and I wish I had written it down because it was such a beautiful way to describe it. But it was like, you can have an intimate space with people and still feel completely isolated. 
And I loved how you explained that. And I think that that could also resonate with so many people not feeling like they belong anywhere, even if they are around those people that love and support them. And so I wonder, how did you not get angry about that? And how did you not push away those people in your life when you were sort of separate? So that's a great question. I, I have never consciously pushed anybody away, but I definitely gravitate toward <laughs> the people that I, I enjoy being around, the people that make me comfortable, or the people that are, are patient and tolerant. You know, it's a funny thing about hearing loss and probably with a number of different rare diseases is some of the things people deal with are invisible or even like mental health. Some of the things people deal with are invisible. And so other people can't see that. And so if you don't respond, quote unquote, normally or as they would expect, they think you're maybe being rude or inconsiderate or just not a very nice person. And so I'm sure there are people that I've crossed paths in life with that probably think I'm aloof or rude because I didn't respond to them. But hearing loss is invisible, not just to other people, but myself. And so the, the dinner explanation, the circumstance that you described that I wrote about, that's really every meal for me every single day. There's a mental gymnastics of making sure I put myself in the quietest place, sitting by people that, that know me or that I, that I want to talk to or that I feel like I can have a comfortable conversation with despite a cacophony of sounds that happen in any restaurant. And... You know, along with that comes some different coping mechanisms of like I try to avoid groups of three because one on one I can be in a conversation, but two on one, two other people have a tendency to get into a conversation and it's hard for me to follow it, it's like watching a game of tennis. So those are a few different coping mechanisms, but I, I really, uh, this is probably just a, a life lesson in general is I make a point of seeking out the people that accept me and for what I have, but then also people that push me to do more and be better. And I guess that goes back to wanting to thrive with rare disease is who are the people that are going to say, okay, Matt, it's, it's pretty cool that you wrote a book. I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. You know, and even just a, a, a very simple sentence like that, I find motivation in of like, yes, this isn't the end. You know, I've got hopefully 30 more years of doing something surrounding myself with people that are pushing me to do more and be better is has been um, very fulfilling for me. I should also say, though, that I recognize, and again, this goes back a little bit to, to the privilege, is not everybody who is dealing with a physical or mental health issue has something that is going to be overcome. Or like, hey, just because you're not writing a book about it doesn't mean you're not managing that in your own way. We're all on our own journey here. And I wrote about my journey and my experience and how I do it. And if somebody can take away something positive from that, great. But if this isn't your experience or their experience, that's okay too. I'm not trying to tell anybody how to act or how to respond. I just know it's been very healthy for me to do things like find the small wins and stuff to celebrate those small wins. If I find myself really struggling with something or something's particularly difficult, trying to reframe that as instead of a problem, how can I turn this into an opportunity? Those are just little things that I do every day, just like finding the quietest spot in a restaurant that makes my life more manageable. Thanks for that thoughtful answer. I know, obviously, that there is this place, right, of absolute uncertainty that's so extremely 
painful and feeling unending and clinical depression. And so thank you for pointing that out. And there is space for others to kind of go off on that other path, right, to where they are sort of looking for the glimmers, as you mentioned a lot. And so I wonder if someone is kind of feeling that way and they're tired and they have enough support around them or if they have enough, you know, oomph right now, how do you suggest that they sort of change that narrative for themselves and kind of choose their story if they can? Like, how important do you think it is to change that narrative around living with a rare disease or being a caregiver of one with a rare disease from merely surviving to thriving? I try very hard not to tell other, I mean, unless you're one of my children, I try very hard not to tell people what to do. I'm very comfortable sharing my experience, but again, I, you know, everybody's dealing with their own thing. So it seems a little bit presumptuous for me to ever tell somebody else, but I can share that I mentioned small wins just now. It took me about 20 years to really define that and recognize, hey, the times where I was able to go from being deaf and paralyzed to being able to run a marathon, that whole thing started with me celebrating the ability to sit up in the ICU. And then the next step was the day I could turn sideways and let my feet that I couldn't feel, my legs that I couldn't feel dangle off the side of the bed and hold myself upright. And by the way, I did that so that two strange nurses could carry me to the toilet. And, um, you know, so it's hard if I can find a reason to celebrate an improvement in the process to have strange women carry me to the toilet. I think people can find a reason to celebrate just about anything. And even then to be able to say, I've got this and have them leave me in the bathroom and close the door and to be able to do that on my own. That was a win. That's a circumstance where I could have been in there alone and thought, and I did, I did think this, not could have. I did think this stinks. How did I end up here? Or this is just the beginning of the end. I wasn't okay with that. I just, I, I refused to accept that and decided, you know what? I can just reframe this as sure. I'm, I had to have somebody carry me into the bathroom. But I have progressed to a point where I'm now in here alone and I don't have somebody standing in here watching me. If I can find that as a win, I mean, I know this sounds like a maybe a silly or crude example, but it's a real answer. And it felt like a pretty significant win. And I thought, you know what? I need to do more of that. And so I thought, uh, you know, and I talk about this in the book, I've been fortunate to do a couple of endurance events after losing my ability to walk, you know, using a trike and I might be the only Ironman person who's ever completed an Ironman on a tricycle. But it was after that, I thought instead of going through these steps of rehab, where I think why in the world is finding buttons in a box of rice going to help me exist better in the world or recover? I started thinking of those seemingly silly little steps as triathlon training. How can I turn this, this bad experience into something positive? So when I was walking through cones with the strap around my waist and two physical therapists helping me navigate these cones, instead of thinking, this is so silly, how is this ever going to help me? I started thinking, today's my first day toward being a marathon runner. And then a week later, a month later, nine months later, I was running and ended up running 26.2 miles. So reframing that just became a necessary coping mechanism for me, but it doesn't have to be that big. It doesn't have to be 26.2 miles. Maybe it is being able to use the bathroom on your own, or maybe it is being able to drive a car or use the phone. Yeah. 
Really, I mean, you said a lot there and it's so true. And it's just that whole basic thing of recognizing those small wins and celebrating them because they compound, right? And you're checking something off your list and it's remarkable, no matter how big or small it is for anyone else is how it is for you. If you've ever looked for a four leaf clover or a shark tooth on the beach, they're impossible to find. And then after you find one of them, you start just seeing them everywhere. If you've ever done a Where's Waldo book, Waldo's always so hard to find. And then once you see him, you go back to that book and you're like, it's so obvious that Waldo's right there. And I feel like wins in my life, no matter how small, were like that. Once I started looking for them, I found reasons to celebrate, even though I can't eat uh, without spilling food down my face because I can't feel it. At the time I was in a wheelchair, I had an eye patch on and I couldn't hear being able to celebrate something like, you know, today I was able to roll myself to the kitchen by myself. Those wins start showing up everywhere. Yes, I love that so much. Okay, Matt, I want to talk just a little bit about storytelling, something you're you're very good at and that we talk about a lot in the rare disease community about raising awareness and also, you know, casting that line out that we talked about and being a sort of a lighthouse in a sense for people to find you when they're searching for anything that can help or any information. And so I was hoping that you'd talk about maybe how important you think storytelling is or how best do you think one should think about telling their story and perhaps why, if it's something that they want to do. <laughs> You're talking to somebody that wrote 272 pages <laughs> about themselves. So I'm probably a bit subjective on the importance of storytelling. But um, I think one of the hesitations, and uh, this is speaking as somebody who has also spent time, a lot of time actually, as a patient advocate for myself and others, there's this belief that I have to be, or one has to be, a polished, incredible speaker to tell their story. And I would venture to say that the polished, incredible speakers sometimes less impactful because when it comes to sharing your experience with, with rare disease, the more real, and the word authentic gets thrown around all the time, but the more just real and personal your story is, the more impactful it can be. So if anybody's out there is wondering, well, should is my story worth telling or can I tell this story? I don't even need to meet you to be able to confidently say, absolutely, your story is worth telling. I'll just share a quick anecdote about that. The very first time I went went to an NF advocacy event, I was still dealing with a lot and I had not met anybody else with uh, with neurofibromatosis. And so I went because I thought, oh, it'll be nice to see other people and share my experience and hear their experience. And I walked in and I got to the table and I never got past putting my name on a name tag. And I looked around and I turned around to walk out. I wasn't ready to be there because I thought, I don't know what to say. I don't know what people are going to want from me or what I want from them. And it was very, it was a scary time for me. It also forced me to face what I was going through because I was seeing other people deal with it. But before I could leave, a mom there at the name tag table, you know, you got the Sharpie and the hello, my name is tags that stick on your shirt. And she came, as I turned around to leave, she was behind me and she looked right at me. I mean, five steps into the door and said, do you have NF? And I said, yeah, I have NF too. And she was there with her, a little boy, well, you know, presumably her son. And she said, I'm so glad you exist. And man, she wasn't saying I like you. I, she wasn't saying thank you for sharing or you did a great job telling your story. That day in that lobby at that hotel in that suburb of Chicago, 
the story that I had to tell and the story that somebody needed to hear was to just exist because she saw me with a wedding ring and car keys and walking with a work bag. And, and she put all of that together and said, and shared with me afterwards, it's hard for her to think about her son's future weeks at a time that she never imagined a world where her kiddo with NF would be able to drive himself to a conference and, you know, maybe talk to his wife on the text, his wife on the way home. And that day, my story was, for her was to exist. And that was a huge, really learning opportunity for me that sometimes it doesn't matter what you say or how you say it. It's just sometimes you just need to be there and exist. And that was, I, I've thought about that moment a lot in my own advocacy group where I've wondered, or my own advocacy efforts, when I've wondered, am I doing enough or am I saying the right things or doing the right things? And so I would encourage anybody else, if you're thinking, am I, am I capable of doing this or do I have, can I say the right things? Sometimes you just need to exist. I think that's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard. <laughs> and I think you're reading my mind because my literal next question that I wanted to ask was a direct one to the parents of the young kids who have NF1 or NF2. But what would you say to those parents as a young boy who went through all of this and who didn't necessarily understand what was happening and maybe was ignoring it? What would you say to those parents, but also to those young kids? This is probably one of the more, uh, I think the time I don't get emotional thinking about this stuff is the time I really need to do some serious self-reflection because what I try to do and still don't do enough of is to let those people know, whether it's Nora or my parents or friends and family, my brother, the people that have been around me and supported me is to say thank you for, for all that they do for me and the selfless giving, the things that they put aside, siblings, parents, the things that they put aside, the stuff they don't get to do because of the time required to spend 12 hours in LA in a hospital OR waiting to find out if I lived. I never said thank you. I never recognized and they weren't looking for that. But I still think when people sacrifice on your behalf, they you know, we're all human. We like to hear an acknowledgement that that sacrifice was at least recognized. And I'm in a position now where I get to say thank you to a lot of people that were in my life at the time and in my life now that have supported me. And I, I just know a lot of parents that are giving and giving and giving <laughs> and maybe don't get much in return because their kiddo maybe can't say thank you or because they're a kid and they're not thinking about saying thank you. So uh, I would say to you, Effie, to your family, um, all the people out there in similar situations is on behalf of the people that you care for and that you sacrifice for because I have the microphone right now and because I have the podcast guest appearance right now, I want to say thank you on their behalf because maybe they can't now, but they want to, or maybe they can't now because they're not old enough yet to formulate that thought. So that's what I would say is thank you. Well, the NF community and the greater rare disease community in the entire world is so lucky to have you. I appreciate the work that you do every single day, Matt, and it is so inspiring 
like genuinely inspiring to know everything that you've been through and to have heard your thoughts through those processes by just knowing you and also reading your book. It's really profound. And I think it's going to be a really, really great resource for people. And I especially think about those young kids and those young adults and maybe even those You know, I still call them kids, I guess, but when they go off to college and they're alone and they're doing this and their hearing is going and whatever, that they know you exist. And I think that that's going to empower a lot of people way more than it probably would have before. So I'm certainly still too young to be thinking about, you know, what people mean when they talk about legacy, but I I still live with a bit of an anvil over my head, which a lot of people do, um, you know, when you're dealing with health issues. And um, it's created a bit of an urgency for me because I don't know what kind of timeline I'm uh, working with. I mean, really, none of we do, but none of us do. But if there's anybody out there that can read this or story or hear my story and it makes their life a little bit better, I think that's the kind of legacy I would be pretty satisfied working towards. So thank you for sharing that. And then before I go, I want everyone, uh, anyone listening to know one of the gifts that Effie gives and one of the reasons I was honored to be a part of this conversation is at some point we all ask ourselves, I think, how can I use my voice? And I have a lot of respect for you, Effie, for looking around and saying, I'm going to use my voice to lift up and highlight other people's voices. And um, that's just a very unique and giving way to use your talent. And I think that can be part of your legacy too. So thank you for doing that, Effie. Oh my gosh, Matt, you're so sweet. Thank you for that beautiful compliment. It is my ultimate pleasure and honor. Okay, well, can you please tell everybody where they can find you, where they can buy your book, where you prefer that they buy your book and any other things that you want to leave that perhaps I didn't ask you today? Sure, thank you. The name of the book is Soundtrack of Silence. And it's really available. I've never actually said this out loud, but it's available wherever books are sold. So you can find it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online uh, or local bookstore. Hopefully I post most of the the things about what I have going on at here on an Instagram account, which is called herematthay.com. H-E-A-R-M-A-T-T-H-A-Y. I guess it doesn't have .com. That's what happens when you're 47 is you forget how Instagram works. Awesome. I'm sure uh, they'll be seeing a TED Talk from you soon, and hopefully we'll be seeing you speak in person at many conferences to come. It's an honor to know you and be your friend, Matt. You're so cool. So much love to your family. Thank you for being my guest, and thank you for telling your story. It was my pleasure, Evie. Thank you. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 ha!